Welcome everyone to Classics, Kane Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, art, film, and music. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I continue an interview with Professor Hunter Rawlings, President Emeritus and Professor Emeritus of Classics at Cornell University. I hope you enjoy this podcast recorded at Professor Rawlings' home in Washington, D.C. This is part two of a two-part ago you said something about his command of rhetoric and uh, it occurred to me to ask this question I'm going to ask a, a later question about the Melian dialogue and the Millennium debate is um, with Socrates or Plato Socrates anyway there's great sensitivity about the negative the corrosive impact of rhetoric in the hands of the sophists do we get in Thucydides anything like um, a pre-Socratic sensitivity comparable to Socrates? We get in Thucydides a deep analysis of the effects of rhetoric on a population, on citizens. He's highly conscious of how distortive rhetoric can be in the hands of a dishonest politician, for example. And he has one in his history in particular, Cleon, whom he focuses on as a devious politician who is a populist and distorts facts in order to win popular favor and support. And it's a lesson in the effect of clever rhetoric on politics. And in fact... We see Cleon as a major interlocutor in the Millennium debate, right? With, that's uh, right. Diodotus? Yeah. Yes, Diodotus. Diodotus. And that's a great debate because Cleon goes first in the way Thucydides portrays the debate, and he makes some powerful points, very powerful points. And he makes some distortive points as well to win his case. Diodotus comes along, faced with a very difficult task of trying to oppose a popular leader who's just given a powerful speech. And Diodotus does one of the most clever jobs possible of undermining what Cleon has said. Uh, It's too much to go into, but for students who want to read a debate, a one-on-one debate, Mm that is constructed with enormous intellectual um, capability, that's a great pair of speeches to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I um, taught Thucydides last year at the Marine Corps University in Quantico, Virginia. And it's probably the best teaching experience I've ever had in many decades of teaching. I I was teaching a, a seminar composed of majors in the Marine Corps. These were uh, Marines around the age of 40 who had commanded troops. After all, they had been lieutenants and captains, and now they were majors. And they were reading Thucydides for the first time. And most or all of them would have had probably seen action, been deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. Absolutely, absolutely. Been under fire, they had led troops, and they were confronting an ancient Greek author for the first time. They had never studied Thucydides before. I've never seen such a good class. Hmm. They were highly motivated. One of the first things I learned is when 
you give Marines an assignment, they do it. Yeah, they take the hill. <laughs> <laughs> and they usually do it twice because they want to be prepared. Secondly, the harder the text got, and Thucydides is pretty hard, yeah. the more they relished it. You could just see them eating it up for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Thirdly, they couldn't wait to get to class to debate the things that they were reading about in mm-hmm. Thucydides. We had some knock-down, drag-out debates, mm-hmm. and they were informed debates uh, in the sense that the Marines were prepared to argue a case. Um, finally, and maybe most importantly, I asked them at the end of the seminar, look, did this reading of Thucydides actually apply at all to what you confront in the Marine Corps? Or is it just something very interesting to read? That's a great question. But because it's so out of date, you know, no airplanes, no ballistic missiles, mm-hmm. it's just not pertinent to what you do. And I said, be honest. Don't try to make the old professor feel good, you know. Tell me what you actually think. And these Marines said, oh, sir, you don't realize this is completely on point for what we face. And I said, how can that be? These Athenians and Spartans were using spears and swords, you know, and they had ships that were rowed by, by large crews. They said, listen, war is war. Whether it was in 430 B.C. or 2012, war is war, and leadership is leadership. When you're leading Marines into battle, you're doing the same thing that Demosthenes was doing yeah. in, in the Peloponnesian War. And the ethical situations you confront are very scary and very difficult. And they're the same situations that were confronted by Athenian and Spartan commanders at that time. So that sounds to, to my ear that uh, uh, their experience and their apologia for reading the, the text, which must have been great for um, a professor who'd been teaching it for decades, gives credence to the claim that Thucydides makes early on in the, in the history that the human nature is such that um, this history will, will, will have legs. And, you know, generations later, people who read the history will learn about their own situation. Uh, precisely because of uh, the uh, stable nature of human nature. You're exactly right, and you're referring to a very famous and important passage in Thucydides' introduction to his work, and he says exactly what you said. Uh, Human nature remains the same, and as long as human nature remains the same, Mm -hmm. we're going to have things happening in the future that are very similar Mm -hmm. to what has happened in my war. They're not exactly the same. He's very careful to say that. Mm -hmm. They're not precisely the same. But they are similar enough so that you can learn from my history. Mm -hmm. So clearly his intent was to provide experiences that the Greeks underwent that can be helpful to people later. Now, Mm -hmm. do they, in his opinion, help you avoid war in the future? Mm -hmm. He would have said, of course not because it's human nature to go to war. So he's not writing his book to somehow stave off all future wars. He knows that that's forlorn Mm -hmm. as a hope. But he does want you to see situations that might help you learn. Later writers, more philosophical writers, will have 
clear concepts of history, or I'm sorry, clear concept of nature. And think of Aristotle, who uses the term equivocally, but still, I think you, you know, if you read the Ethics uh, and the Metaphysics, you, we can arrive at a concept of nature. What about Thucydides? Is is it more that he's an observer of, of human behavior, and so he has a sort of sober record keeper of of that behavior? He can say, yeah, nature is is stable. Or is there something conceptual? Could, could we say there's a Thucydidean concept of nature? Yes, we, we definitely can, because uh, Thucydides was such an intellect that he shapes everything in his history. There's not a word out of place in Thucydides' history. Every word is considered rhetorically mm-hmm. and intellectually for what it's saying. I, I, I've been reading Thucydides now for 50 years, and I, it never grows old. It never grows old because it is intellectually so profound. And a mind that's that powerful can't help but shape the narrative and the speeches, sometimes probably even unconsciously. Yeah. Because after all, once an event has happened... It's over. Those events are over. So even a week later, you're going to have 19 different ways of looking at those events because they're gone now. They're only remaining in the minds of men and women. And Thucydides understood that very clearly. And so his concept of the truth is a very complicated thing. (laughs) I've studied that quite a lot. His concept of the truth is that it is a difficult thing to grasp. And sometimes your truth is going to wind up being different from my truth, even though we both have, quote, all the facts at hand, unquote. You have all the facts, I have all the facts, and you and I still are going to disagree on what happened. How can that be? It can be because your mind shapes those events in your way and my mind shapes them in my way. Now, with some historians, there's a big effort to avoid any kind of subjectivity. They want to be objective as possible, and that's a great goal for an historian. Thucydides wanted to be objective, but he knew he couldn't ever be 100% objective. So he... I think, understood very well that his account is his account. Now, he's very clever. He rarely tells you what to think about anything. And he rarely tells you what he thinks about something. Instead, he leads you down a certain path. And sometimes you're just pulled down his path by his rhetorical power so that you begin to think that his account is your account. You know what I mean? Sure. You you begin to think that that's the truth. Because look, Thucydides isn't telling me what to believe. Mm -hmm. He's laying it out. But he's laying it out with such ability that it is leading us to his truth. So uh, let me see if I can put that in my own words. So the 
So Thucydides recognizes that, that each great mind, a mind like his, a mind like Herodotus, would, would look at a situation, and there's, there is definitely going to be a difference between the two. But he strains everything he has to illuminate the human condition, to illuminate the human condition through this concrete set of events. And, and we, in turn, you know, 2,500 years later, look at those events. Historians look at those events and say, by gum, he had it. He, he, he nails it as an historian. But we, as students of the human condition, of, our, of uh, the inclination to war, uh, the, the, uh, the, the various uses of rhetoric, um, the, the qualities of leadership as your, your uh, majors at Quantico have studied, all of these things are illuminated uh, quite accurately, quite beautifully. And, and so we, we're pulled into the story of the war and we, and we come away and say, this really has been an exercise in the study of, of humankind. Yes, it, it definitely feels like that when you get through reading Thucydides. <laughs> Even when you get through reading Thucydides for the ninth time, it feels like that. Yeah. I guess one way to sum it up is to say he was a literary artist, mm-hmm. not just an historian. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to be a very good historian. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's another thing to be a very careful historian and a literary artist. Mm. So, so you've spoken to his command of rhetoric what are some of the other elements of the text as a literary text that uh, teachers and students should have an eye for? So one thing that a great French scholar, a woman named Jacqueline de Romilly, pointed out back in the 1950s is that through Thucydides' text, all through it, there run certain conducting lines she uses the French term fille conducteur. These are like electrical lines running through the text. Now, what does she mean by that? She means that a particular word or term that he uses in book one reappears in book three. Fairly unobtrusively, but if you're a good reader, you see, look, he's using that same term. Why? because he's drawing a little analogy between what he's describing in one with what he's describing in three. Then you see it again in book six. The same little term, which is unusual in Thucydides, reappears in book six, and you think, ah, there, there it is again. What's he telling me by doing that? That's a totally fascinating aspect of Thucydidean writing that de Romilly Discovered and wrote a book about in the 50s. Can you give us um, an, an example? Well, um, let's see what one of the best things is. He uses terms in Pericles' speeches that reappear years later in his history huh. in speeches by Alcibiades and Nicias. But they've been twisted a little bit by the time they're used by Nicias and Alcibiades. So the careful reader says, ah, look, there's a Periclean echo. Wow, this is picking up on Pericles. But but wait, what has Nicias done with that Periclean? He's corrupted it, or he has reversed it, or he has tainted it. 
And so it's not exactly what Pericles meant, but it's to make us think, whoa, something rather unfortunate is going on here. So so would it be fair to say that we have something like um, telltale bookends? And, of course, Pericles has advice on how to win the war, and for all intents and purposes, that advice is abandoned, right? Yes. And then it's expressed exactly right by the, the characters you just named uh, in sort of the, the upended way, right? Yes. Yeah. And this is, a, this is a Thucydidean habit. He loves to undercut. <laughs> he, he does this quite frequently, and it's a way of not being cynical, but being skeptical about men's motives. Usually, he's undercutting someone's motive, and he's making the person convict himself out of his own mouth, if you see what I mean. Cleon says things that look superficially very uh, impressive, but if you just read a little carefully, you see that they're undercut. One uh, One of the most striking examples is in the funeral oration, Pericles says that no citizen on earth of any country is equal to so many emergencies as the Athenian Mm. and is so capable of, on his own, being able to do anything he wants. Three pages after that funeral oration, Thucydides is describing the plague in Athens. Mm -hmm. And he says, using the very same words Pericles had, that the citizens under the pressure of the plague could not, on their own, handle the situation. Three pages after Pericles has praised the Athenian character as the highest character of any country in the world. So, all right, well, let's take the, the, that observation of Thucydides and let it redound to Pericles. To, to, so should we... Pericles is missing the boat? Did mm-hmm. he misinterpret Athenian character? Or was it perhaps that rhetorically he was trying to call them on to a higher character they weren't yet living towards? So that's the kind of question that Thucydides does not let us answer definitively. Mm-hmm. By design, in my belief. Mm-hmm. I don't think Thucydides is saying, because of what I've pointed out with this irony between mm-hmm. what Pericles claimed and what actually happened mm-hmm. under the pressure of the plague... I don't think he's saying, therefore, we should condemn Pericles Mm -hmm. as being short-sighted. Nor is he saying Pericles was the perfect leader and everything he said was completely right Mm -hmm. and we should admire it wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. Instead, as usual in Thucydides, Andrew has to come to his conclusion Mm -hmm. about what's being said, Mm -hmm. and Hunter has to come to his conclusion And we may differ. Mm -hmm. And Thucydides would say, that's great. Mm -hmm. That's great. Because that's the way I wrote my history. For Andrew to have to fight through these things Mm -hmm. on his own and come to his conclusion, and Hunter to have to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Because guess what? There's no perfect answer. Yeah. So human nature may be stable, but it's not static. (laughs) Right, right. It's not static. I wonder... uh, in the funeral oration, correct me if I'm I'm remembering this uh, wrongly, but doesn't Pericles say that 
uh, he lays out something like um, a public etiquette, how we as Athenians are going to relate to each other, how there's responsibility for the, for the order and the life of the city. But in our private lives, we're very liberal, so we don't judge each other. We sort of leave each other. Do you, do you think that that's possibly a hint from Thucydides that, um, that that may have been a root of the problem? In other words, maybe maybe on the level of, of personal private, that sort of the private part of personal character, maybe that's sort of the, the point at which something like the plague comes along and just, uh, just you know, the character factor implodes. So that's a crucial question for Pericles. It's mm-hmm. a crucial question for Thucydides. If there's one thing that Pericles says in all of his speeches, there are three Periclean speeches in Thucydides, if there's one point he's making above all, it is the following. Private life is nice, but it is nothing compared to public contribution. So whenever you have a choice between saving your beautiful farm and defeating the Spartans, you've got to sacrifice your farm in order to defeat the Spartans. He says, I don't care what the issue is. You have to prefer the public wheel over the private. So that distinction between public and private is the distinction in all of Pericles' speeches in Thucydides. And he is uncompromising. He says, I don't care how well off you are as a citizen. If your city fails, you're done. Given that, he says, you have to give your whole body and self and mind and family to our public policies and efforts. When later leaders come along, like Nicias, they hedge a little bit on that question. Nicias says, you know, I'm as public-spirited as anyone, uh-huh. but I think when I am prospering as a private citizen, that's good for the state. Uh-huh. And Alcibiades goes further, and Alcibiades <laughs> says, look, you're all jealous that I'm winning all these Olympic races and that I've got all this talent and all of this success. Horses. But he says, that redounds to the city's credit. People look at me and they say, Wow, Athens must really be something if it can create an Alcibiades. Well, that is turning Pericles on its head. So Thucydides, there's one of those fee conductor, there's one of those conducting lines in Thucydides that goes from Pericles saying everything has to be the public wheel to Nicias saying, yeah, but it's okay if I do well personally, to Alcibiades saying, I'm it, I'm the one who counts, and the city should be really grateful to me for being so successful. Something that occurs to me after that description is, to, is I wonder, did, did Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle uh, read Thucydides? So uh, Socrates might have somehow heard some of Thucydides' text. The reason I say heard is that publication in those days usually meant the author reading a text aloud because there weren't multiple copies of most of these things and so literature meant things you listened to and it's possible that Thucydides had some readings uh, prior to Socrates' death 
even though Thucydides was in exile for a large part of the war? So the answer is, we don't really know, but it does appear to me and to some others that Plato was aware of Thucydides. Never mentions his name, never quotes him, but he does seem at times to respond to things Thucydides wrote. Well, one of the reasons I ask that question is it seems to me that the the three great practitioners of philosophy, you know, sort of the the big the big three kings, are um, are working over that relationship between the private and the public in a way that's fresh, intensive, uh, attempting serious reform. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't succeed. It doesn't. Athens doesn't really reform, but it is a, a remarkable turn. Uh, and effort. It it is. And I don't want to shortchange the Athenians. We we very often (laughs) so much like Socrates that we condemn the Athenians for being really bad people. Um, That's the way way Plato felt, for example, about the Athenians. He he didn't like democracy because it put his teacher to death. Um, But I don't think we ought to shortchange the Athenians. For close to 200 years, they conducted a city's business through direct democracy. They cherished their democracy. They cherished their law courts. They gave themselves fully to battle whenever they were called upon. When they were called to go to an assembly to meet, they always got a quorum. A quorum, by the way, was 6,000. So if they had under 6,000, they couldn't conduct definitive business. We have no evidence that they ever failed to get a quorum. Mm-hmm. That tells me they were engaged. Mm-hmm. They were heavily engaged. So I give them a lot of credit. I do too. I, in fact, I, 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 I'm going to have a little confession here. So when I read the history of the Peloponnesian War, I really feel the Athenian pull. Like, <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm pulling for them, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm so. Um, you know, I, I'm so sad <laughs> about the way things end up. So you know what? Thucydides made you do that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because I have the same problem you do when the Athenians lose yet again in Sicily in Book oh. 7. I'm crushed. Why am I crushed? Because Thucydides describes that in the most pathetic words yeah. possible. And the death of Nicias, this yeah. good man, is just a terrible thing to read about in Thucydides. And that's one great difference between Herodotus and Thucydides, I should, I should say. There's a lot of similarity between the two, and I have enormous respect for both. But in Herodotus, hundreds of thousands of people die in battles and all sorts of plagues and so forth, and they don't care too much about their deaths. In Thucydides, when people die... I care. Yeah. Why? Because he has described the deaths in such a powerful manner. Yeah. And that that seems sort of the the first gauge that a reader has. It's like um, a good film reviewer would say, you know, has the movie made me care about the characters, right? So, and we do. We really do care about the, the Athenians. Um. One of the hallmarks of Athenian culture is tragedy. So it's very powerful, uh, Aeschylus sort of at the the top of the hill. Uh, Some scholars, I'm thinking of Eric Vogel and 
describe uh, Plato's uh, dialogues as the new tragedy. You know, it's a, the the new attempt to uh, effect catharsis, right? But this time one on one. Although he writes them down in the sense they become public. Mm-hmm. But um, is it too much, or is it apt to describe the history of the Peloponnesian War as a kind of tragedy? I, I think it's exactly right myself, um, as long as one's a little careful about uh, too close a, a, an analogy between Thucydides and, say, Aeschylus. It, it's a tragedy. The Peloponnesian War, as written by Thucydides, is a tragedy in which the tragic hero is the city of Athens. So it's not Pericles, it's not Nicias. He takes the city and personalizes it. He makes it into a great character, a character with enormous talent, like other heroes of Greek tragedy, but with a terrible flaw, a really terrible flaw. And the flaw in Athens is this propensity to disagreement and to civil war. Uh, disagreement between Sparta and Athens no, or internal to Athens? internal disagreement. Yeah. In other words, the Athenians had great talents, phenomenal talents. They were described by Pericles as intelligent, forthcoming in their support of the city, able to conduct an empire, to create vast wealth, beautiful buildings, all of these things. But look what they did to their leaders. They almost threw Pericles out of town. Mm-hmm. They wound up fining him. They exiled Thucydides. They exiled Themistocles, the great victor over the Persians. Mm. They sent many of their generals into exile. They got rid of Alcibiades and turned him into an enemy. Why did they keep doing this? Because they were enormously jealous of talent. Mm. And Thucydides tells us that. They were incredibly jealous of talent. So it was a highly competitive society in which they cooperated for the common good, but they competed on a personal level. And that's part of the aristocratic ideal in ancient Greece, was to be incredibly competitive. The Greek word for competition is agon. We get our word agony. They competed to the point of agony. (laughs) And so this city, with this tremendous set of talents was unstable politically. Sparta, on the other hand, that didn't have nearly that level of sheer talent, was an incredibly stable state with a constitution that remained firm and, with few exceptions, remained together and cohesive. The Athenians are always in danger of falling apart over internal dissent. So, Professor Rawlings, your majors at Quantico said war is war, and so Thucydides has his finger on it. Would, would you say jealousy of leadership is jealousy of leadership so that later in history we, we see um, events that are illuminated by the history of the Peloponnesian War? Well, I, I do. I think we see a great deal of illumination, but I do want to reserve, so to speak, individuality for the Athenians I think they were different from us Mm -hmm. in a number of ways. We like to look at 
Athenian democracy and say that's that's our democracy. No, it wasn't. No. It was radically different from our democracy. We want to look at them and say they were talented, we're talented. They were talented in some different ways. And they were very tribal. I think we have to remember how tribal they were. When our founders of the, U, of the United States looked for a model for their government, for the new country, they looked to Rome, not Athens. Why? Because they saw in Rome a relatively stable republic that could govern itself and govern others. And that shared citizenship. I mean, St. Paul got Roman citizenship. Why? Because the Romans were very open to allowing people, even in Africa, where Paul came from, to hold Roman citizenship. The Athenians never would have shared citizenship. To be a citizen in Athens, both your parents had to be citizens. And that's what you mean by tribal? That's what I mean by tribal. Mm. The Athenians, like most Greeks at the time, were jealous of their own type. Mm. And that meant they did not share citizenship. Mm. And they did things together in the way families do, yeah. which is great. But they were not good at sharing their wealth, <laughs> of all kinds of wealth. And so they're really different from us, and I think we have to keep that in mind. So some, some really important strands here are being developed in, in, in your explanation, I think. This is very helpful. So let, let's go to uh, something you mentioned earlier, and that is the Amelian Dialogue and the Millennium Debates. So uh, for teachers leading students... Um, if I hear you correctly, one of your counsels to make sure you understand that there's something really unique about Athens. So what's unique about those exchanges? That What's peculiar to Athens? Because just on the surface of it, we go, uh, we've seen this a hundred times in history, a thousand times, power-mongering. Yes. And people will machinate, they'll deceive, they'll threaten, cajole, strong-arm. You know, that's, Those are human sins. They aren't just Athenian sense. <laughs> but, true, but, true. So, so what's human, what's Athenian? You know, okay. not, not that they're divorced somehow, but you know, lay the drama for us. Set the stage. So probably the most famous passage in Thucydides is the Melian Dialogue at the end of Book 5, in which the Athenians arrive to conquer the little island of Melos, which has tried to remain neutral in the war. And the Melians say, look, leave us alone. We're not going to fight against you. We're not going to fight for you. Just leave us alone. We're a small island. We're not of much value. And the Athenians say, you know, if we leave you alone, we look weak. If we leave this little tiny island in the midst of the Aegean Sea, which is our sea, we look weak. So I'm sorry, we have to conquer you. We have to. We're forced to bring you into our empire. And the Melians say, we don't understand that. You know, we've remained neutral in the war. We've done whatever you might want in that sense. And it would be a terrible thing for other people to see you crushing our little island. It's going to hurt you in the long run. And the Athenians say, we don't worry about that. We don't worry about that. And the Melians say, but wait, the gods are going to dislike you intensely. 
if you crush us. The Athenians say, we don't know about you, but we believe that the gods act just the way men do. Just the way men do. When something is in their interest, they do it. When it's not, they don't do it. So don't talk to us about the gods. Melians say, if you try to crush us, the Spartans are going to come help. They're going to come help us. Athenians say, don't make us laugh. You're out here in the middle of the Aegean Sea. The Spartans will never be brave enough to come out here and face us in, in the sea. The Spartans, more than any men we know, follow whatever is in their own interest. So they're not going to come. So every time the Melians offer the Athenians an argument, the Athenians say, sorry, you're hopeless. And in the end, the Athenians say, you know, you're very, very nice, and you're very, very naive. And your naivete is going to get you killed. I mean, it is, it is a debate between a powerhouse. It's not just a powerhouse militarily, but intellectually. And a, and a little island that's just trying to stay out of the way. Yeah, and the, and the, way, the way you laid that out was uh, the Athenians are so confident. It's a refrain of yours. They're so confident in their understanding of people, uh, gods, and of the situation at hand. Yeah, they, they, they think they understand everything. So in the end, they crush Milos. They kill all the adult males, all of them, and they send the women and children into exile. Milos is obliterated, and the Athenians move people onto the island and take it. Now, when you get students to debate this dialogue, and you push some of them to be Athenians and others to be Melians, they have to confront these arguments. Melians make some pretty decent arguments. The Athenians seem to make more powerful arguments. So where's Thucydides stand on this? Whose side is he on? He doesn't say, as usual. He lets you do the reading. But keep this in mind. When the Peloponnesian War finally ended, 11 years after that debate, What condition are the Athenians in? They're in the Melians' condition. They have surrendered unconditionally to Sparta. And we're told by Xenophon, who followed up Thucydides' history that remains unfinished, that the Spartans held a little conference of their allies when the Athenians were completely defeated. And they said to their allies, what should we do with these Athenians? And some of the allies said, kill them all. Treat them the way they treated the Melians. And the Athenians are behind their wall, having capitulated, and they spend a night convinced that they're going to be massacred the way they massacred the Melians. And in the end, the Spartans decide, no, we're not going to kill all the Athenians. We're not going to treat them the way they treated the Melians because they've done some good for Greece over the years. They helped us defeat the Persians. They let them live. If Thucydides had been able to finish his history, would the final segment of his history have been the Athenian dialogue? My guess is yes. Mm -hmm. The Athenian dialogue would have had the Athenians in the position of the Melians. So what is Thucydides trying to tell us? I'll let you come to your own conclusion. Mm -hmm. But if there's ever a case of hubris, very Greek concept, 
begetting ate, destruction, that's the case. Wow. And we, you know, again, we have our kind of first glance uh, judgments about Athens and Sparta. And I, would, I think the average student is not going to anticipate any kind of magnanimity on the part of the Spartans. No, no, you probably know, just not. Harsh, militaristic Sparta, you know, we just wouldn't expect that kind of measurement. But you know, it's interesting because in the Melian dialogue, when the Melians say, you know, the Spartans are going to really crush you if you treat us badly, mm-hmm. the Athenians say, you know, we're not worried about the Spartans defeating us. We're worried that our allies, in other words, our subjects, might defeat us because they will treat us badly. And of course, that's prescient. The Spartans do spare the Athenians. Did Thucydides know that when he wrote the Melian Dialogue? My guess is he did. (laughs) Well, Professor Hunter Rawlings, uh, you've been most generous in your time and your beautiful insight into this magnificent text. Um, I'm on behalf of all of us who teach students and lead them through the history of the Peloponnesian War. Thank you. This thank was just you. A wonderful thank you. Conversation. I've enjoyed the conversation very much. Any chance I get to talk about the cities, I'll take. Yeah. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. enjoyed this episode of classics we have other great episodes coming soon so keep the conversation going and bring your family and friends be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on apple podcasts the producer of this podcast is helen desell zorneman this is andrew zorneman your host for all of us at kane academy thanks for listening to classics